You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And that's the rhythm I can dance to oh, I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to That one big heart that's beating fast Tomorrow morning let it rain Tomorrow morning let it pour Tonight we're in a groove together Ain't gonna worry about Stormy weather Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble on drum. Beat out old trouble on drum. Beat out old trouble on drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Kick him out the door. Kick him out the Welcome to Radical Australia and Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. It's coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. The program is podcast. You can access it by going to 3cr.org.au. We're very pleased to have a Castlemaine celebrity, Rob Wallace, on the phone. How are you, Rob? I'm good, thank you, Joe. How are you? Now, did I... Do it correctly. Is it Castlemaine or Castlemaine? What the is locals, it? The locals say Castlemaine. Castlemaine. Think, yeah, right. it's because of its Irish origin. Right. Castlemaine. Castlemaine. Yeah, and always, I've always said Castle. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I think I'll just give up. I mean, my pronunciation is atrocious at the best of times. That's why I make a good radio person. <laughs> now, Rob, uh, first question. Who do you think was singing? I've got no idea. None whatsoever. That was the radical Margaret Road Knight. Ah, right, yes, I, I know the name. Yeah. yeah, she'd be about your vintage, wouldn't she? Um, <laughs> what, what year were you born? <laughs> if people ask me how old I am, I usually say I'm 44. Then I have to admit I'm no longer sure whether that's my age or the year I was born in. Oh, if you were born in 44, you would have been Margaret. You would have gone to this, you know, you would have had the same experiences as, as Margaret. Oh, well, I'm not sure <laughs> about that one. <laughs> All right. So let's put it this way. You are an elderly gentleman from Castlemaine. Castlemaine. Castlemaine, Victoria. <laughs> All right. We'll leave it at that. Very well. Now, now, I understand you're also a poet of some note. Well, yes, I'm a poet. I've just had my sixth book published um, from Clouds of Magellan Press in Melbourne. Mm. Mm. Um, Look, and- I'm, I'm going to give you a hint, Rob, about this interview. Mm. You get the chance at the end of the uh, program to self-publicise, so relax. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Don't tell us the publisher. We'll sort that out at the end. We've got 56 right. minutes. Right. So, 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 could you grace us with a poem from your latest book? Uh, yes, all right. Um, this one's called Astronauts, and it's about my relationship with my partner. We've been together for 48 years. Astronauts. 
I doubt if I will find another one like you. Time and constant wear allow me to ease into the comfort of your slippered self. Forgiveness smiles from tartar eyes, yet you are harried by afflictions. The age has left your skull bald. There's a pattern not unlike the blemish on the moon. We two have flown there, took our own giant step for mankind. The view from the other side soothed us, yet we were happier when the world welcomed us home. If I'm kept awake at night, it's because you are singing in your sleep, a lunar language impossible to decipher. It leaves me time to think about the choice I made to love you. I too will sing until obscured by the next lunar eclipse. Hmm, Rob, how, how do you go about producing a poem like that? Did you, did you think about it for a long time or did it just come to you? Um, I, I keep a notebook where I scribble down things. When I'm reading or when I'm watching or listening to something and any words, phrases that come at me, I write them down. Um, I handwrite, by the way. I don't do it on a computer. Mm. And I sit at my desk five mornings a week and I write anything just to keep the pen, the borrow going. And sometimes I get ideas from my little notebook. Other times it would come from, you find poems everywhere. Mm. And I would write. Initially, I, years ago, I used to write oh, 20, 30 drafts of a poem and I'd kill it. You know, I'd be looking back for the original because they were better. Right. And now, um, because I've been writing so much for the last few years, uh, I'm probably down to about 10 or 15 drafts. Right. Um, yeah. And like, you don't finish poems. You know, you just someone said you just abandon them somewhere. That's right. You're like a surgeon, you know, when you start off, you're wobbly, but as you cut up more and more people, you get used to the procedure. I mean, yeah. I'm a medical practitioner, so I understand where you're coming oh, from with right. the poem. Now, um, so what was your early life like? Um, well, I was brought up in the suburb of Melbourne suburb of Kew um, and went to a um, an all-boys grammar school, which sounds privileged, but... It wasn't because we were in a rented house with my father and mother, my older sister and myself. And then my father had a fatal heart attack at the age of 42. And my mother was pregnant at the time with her next child. So she must have had a terrible time. And that boy died at 11 months old from cystic fibrosis. So she would have gone through an awful time. Mm. To lose, um, to lose her husband and her child yeah, in yeah. a 12-month period. That's yeah, horrendous. Yeah. Did you have any, any... Were you around then or did you... Well, it's, it's really odd. You know when people used to talk about, oh, they've had these flashbacks of memories, that, you know, of things from their past they didn't know about. Mm. And I used to be sceptical about it, but it's happened to me because it probably was in my... I didn't remember anything about it until I was in my 40s probably. And it didn't just come back with a lightning flash. It just came back gradually. I realised, and I must have been four years old, because that's <clears throat> when he died, that, and he died after dinner. He was sitting in the lounge room reading a newspaper, and I must have been in bed. And I got up, and I must have heard something, wandered into the lounge room, and he was sitting in an armchair clutching his chest and struggling to breathe. And my mother 
was on one side and the neighbour on the other, and the neighbour, I think, rushed me out of the room. Mm. And obviously that was too much for a four-year-old to carry, and it was just wiped. Mm. And it took me a while to realise what I'd remembered. It took me a while to work out that that was the last time I saw my father. Mm. Did Was your father a veteran from World War II? No, 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 he wasn't. So no. that you didn't. So, what type of assistance did your mum get? Um, none that I can remember. I mean, we're talking about um, the nineteen forties. Yes. Um, my mother eventually got a job part time working for a chemist, typing up scripts. Mm. Um, but we had, and we were in Kew, and um, her father and stepmother, my grandparents, were living in Hawthorne within walking distance. And so right. they, they were a great help and you know, I, we spent a lot of time with them. So, so as, a, as a widow, during that period your mum had no support whatsoever? Not that I know of. Right. I, I could be wrong, but right. I can't imagine there was anything right. so, there so available because he wasn't... It wasn't a return serviceman. Legacy, no. legacy wasn't there to no. assist. Yeah, no. yeah. and right. I know my older sister went to a private school as I did, and I know mm. my grandparents helped to pay for that. Mm. Mm. Um, so it, it would have been. A, and then my mother remarried when I was nine. And right, that was a disaster, really. What for you or for her? <laughs> everyone, <laughs> everyone, everyone right. was a total. It was awful, it was and awful. she stayed with him because you know. Yes. Um, if you had children, you had to stay with the man um, for the sake of the children. Well, that's right, because yeah, there was no financial support. No, no. nothing. I no. thought there was something for widows, because my aunt, her uh, husband died in an accident in the 50s, early 50s, and I think she had some type of support, some type of pension, mm. but I'm not sure. Yeah, but, you know, things are much, much different because of people's struggles since then. Yes. So. Here you are, you're nine. Somebody else comes into the family. You think you're saying it's a disaster. How did you, did you escape by going to school, or how did you how did you cope with all this? Um, I th- well, when I was at school, I was a very small boy and and shy and overly sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't know, of course, that I was gay. Um, but gradually that was dawning on me in some ways. But dif- I felt different from everybody else. Um, I was very timid. Um, I didn't do very well at school um, and struggled. Um, I think I, sh- I escaped into reading books, probably, mm-hmm. and, and focusing on, on eventually focusing on schoolwork and trying a bit harder but to escape from whatever was going on around me in the home, which was... I mean, my father, my stepfather was abusive mm, mm. and often drunk and awful. Yeah. So, obviously, did, did you finish high school? Um, yeah, well, it was a, it was a grammar school. Yes, I'd finished year 12. I, at a, because it was a private school, a lot of the other boys at school had went on to Melbourne University, which was the only university available, um, because their parents, their fathers, rather, were doctors and dentists and lawyers. Mm-hmm. And I had no one, in my, no one in my family had ever been to university. I didn't know what a university was. And Monash was built the year before I matriculated. 
and I didn't, couldn't have got into Melbourne because my results wouldn't have been good enough. But I got into Monash just, um, and <laughs> went to university and sat around not knowing what I had to do really for about a term. At, right. <laughs> oh, it didn't matter in those days. You didn't have continuous assessment. It was just a big bang exam at the end a, of the year. A big bend, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it was a much freer time. So. Look, I know this is hard, but um, what did you actually enrol for at Monash? Don't tell me it was an arts degree. Yes, of course it was an arts degree. <laughs> <laughs> I majored in English and history, and of course I ended up an English history teacher. Right, right. Probably, be, partly, I would think because of the, the only two teachers in this grammar school I went to who re- I could relate to were the history teacher and the literature teacher. Yeah. It's, interesting. it's interesting what you're saying there. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of people over the years, and it's amazing the influence that one or two teachers have on a person's direction. You just don't realise till you're much older. So you said you were having feelings that somehow you were different. When did you realise somehow um, things were different? Yeah, that, that's a tricky thing, and I've been writing. There's some of the poems I've written in the mm. new book are about that. Um, and it's hard to pinpoint. I'm not, I'm not saying for a time. I'm just wondering. Yeah. Just wondering very the progression. Young, yeah, sort of very young. I think I remember um, at my grandparents' place, and because my grandfather would have brought home the Herald, and I remember in the summer lying on the lounge room carpet with the age uh, the Herald open in front of me, and looking at. Um, illustrations for beachwear because it was all black and white drawings then and i wasn't interested in looking at the women i was looking at the men right and something inside me was telling me i shouldn't be doing this and i better not let anyone see me Mm -hmm. and i don't know where i must have been picking that up from we know the negativity you get that is rampant in society about difference Mm. and i suppose you'd hear things like about Oscar Wilde was always meant if he was ever mentioned it was within shock or horror still mm-hmm. um, names like that you knew or the only there were no role models in the media or in film or television or books or anything um, if if there was a gay man uh, portrayed in a Hollywood film he was usually the the department store person flapping a feather dust around, you know, yes, yes, mincing yes. about with a feather duster. Mm. No, so the, the few roles that were there were stereotypical, horrible mm. things. Mm. You're listening to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. So, was university a liberating experience or not? Um, it it was. It, yes, it, I guess yes, it was. Basically, it was. I didn't shine. I was still struggling. I need to scrape through all the way through university. Um, I was lost because of my, you know, not understanding my sexual identity. Uh, and it took me a while to work out what I was supposed to be doing. Um, but eventually I made friends. I'm a late developer. You know, I <laughs> develop 
I've been late all my life for everything. Well, ho- hopefully you'll get to 102. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, spare me. Spare me. My grandmother lived to 107, and she was my mother's stepmother. Oh, right. So so I don't have those genes, thank goodness. 107. I've seen 107, Joe, and it's not a good look. I it's not a good look. No, well, I don't know. I've seen a lot of old people. I've just... I've just uh, known a lady who's 91 who's had COVID and just in hospital now but survived. And I'm thinking they're tough. Once you get to your 80s and 90s, people have survived and they're tough. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, um, so you graduated and went straight into teaching, or did you? Straight into yes, yeah, straight into teaching, and and was I. We were all being sent out to the country, and some people tried to get into Melbourne. I, off, you know, I wanted to go to the country to get away from home. It was right. so you're still living at home when you're at university. Oh yes, everyone did. Right. We, I, well, most people. I didn't know anyone who left home. We, right. There was nowhere to go to. I mean, but, I, could, I only got to university because I was on a government, you know, education department scholarship. Scholarship, right. And that paid the fees. Otherwise, the family couldn't have afforded. Yeah, I think it. people forgotten that this was before the Whitlam era, and it was oh, fee yeah, paying. Yeah. yeah, obviously you were bonded for how many? So you were bonded. No wonder you had no break. <laughs> bonded for three years, mm-hmm. um, and I was sent off to um, Yulon Tech. Right. And I was totally ill-equipped. A man's for, man's place, oh, Yulon God. Tech. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all the the, the bloke, all these blokey teachers carried with them to every class this enormous strap, and it was a really long, thick strap. And they belted boys probably every period, and it was usually the same boys getting belted. Hmm. And we were taught in Dipped not to hit anybody. Someone was on a roll about some of our tutors was on a roll about that, so I refused to use one. Hmm. Well, of course, I had terrible times. And they tried to make me. Well, it was hopeless. <laughs> so I was, I was pretty much a failure. And the second year I got moved to Newborough High School, and that was a different... Because everyone, you know, it, they sent off... The boys who, who went to tech schools, um, it was all... You either went to a, a high school or a tech school. So the more academic boys went to the high school and the less went to the tech and they were doing all these trade subjects. Mm-hmm. And for, Eng- for to go into a, a trade class like metalwork or woodwork, they only had 12 desks or 12 hammers or 12. They had, no, sorry, I'm wrong, 24. They had 24, mm-hmm. 24 of everything. Mm-hmm. But when it came to English or history, it was 48. Right. They <laughs> doubled it. Well, you, you, you didn't matter, really. You, they, no. they just did it because they had to, you know. Oh. <laughs> so they could read the instructions. But I did something. I've always somehow got myself into doing something a bit radical. What did you and, do? Well, I was, I, ha- I, I was mostly teaching junior classes, which were totally out of control. But I did have a year 11 class, and they were a bit better. There were some boys in there who were really very good and really got on with me. Mm-hmm. And we were doing, of all things, George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion. Oh, right. Now, can you imagine doing Pygmalion <laughs> at Yulon Tech yeah. in the 1960s? Yeah. I don't think there were 48 boys uh, in the class because a lot of them had left by then. So, you know, yeah, well, to go and, and... And that year, it must have been um, 1966 or something, um, 
My Fair Lady came on as a film in Melbourne. Right. So I announced that I was going to take my class on an, a, an excursion from Yulorne to Melbourne to see this film. Well, all the others were up in, in arm. They were horrified. No, this school has not been on an excursion for years because the boys create havoc, absolute <laughs> havoc. I'll tear the place apart. They said, and, and I was in the sort of the, the secondary school part, and next door up a hill there was the trade school right. where they, they graduated up to there. Hmm. And there was the boss of the trade school was the boss of everything, the headmaster of everything. So they said, you'll have to go up and see whatever his name was and ask him, thinking, well, that'll be the end of it. So I went up and saw this man. I didn't know what sort of... He must have thought I was a complete fool, but <laughs> somehow he said, yes, you can go. And they were... Everyone was horrified. And the morning we left, the unbeen, I wasn't told. The class was told to report to a, a classroom. All these teachers lined the walls, and a teacher stood out the front and threatened them with everything she could possibly think of. So, and I went on my own with this class. And I don't know how come, you know, they, they let me do it. And we got in this train. Of course, trains were dog boxes. You know, there were sort of yeah, different yeah. compartments. So I couldn't, be in a, yeah. I couldn't be in a compartment with, with all of them. I was in just with a few. And I'd go in to check on them, and, and you'd have to wave away the cigarette smoke. And they were holding their hands under seats or out the window, so I couldn't see. So I said the word, sent the word, because the train was stopping at Warrigal, and you could get off for a while get back on again so i sent word around that you know i wouldn't report anyone if they were smoking i didn't care if they smoked as long as they didn't do it in public mm. and the only trouble i had was when we got to warrigal a kid got off onto the platform with a cigarette in his hand and was jumped by several boys right. <laughs> <laughs> he, he disobeyed sir um, and when I got them to Melbourne, I, mm. these are big strapping, you know, year Lads, 11 boys yeah. from the country. Yeah. And what I hadn't realised till we got there, they were as followed me around Melbourne to the theatre as meek as lambs because they had never been to Melbourne before. Right. Yeah. They had never been to a film in Melbourne before. Mm. And they just sat happily through my fair lady. And then on the way home, I was in a carriage with two boys who were brighter than the rest. And they threw a packet of cigarettes out the window. And I said, why did you do that? And they said, well, we've never been on an excursion before. And we thought that's what you did. You, <laughs> you bought cigarettes and smoked them. And they said, we don't like them. So you threw them out. Well, you know, you know, Rob, every one of those boys will remember that trip to the day they die. You realise that? You've had a, well, a, a yes, great I'm sure. impact. I'm sure, because this to, to go to Melbourne, to go to the big smoke, to see the film, the sh and the fact that you had trust in them, yeah, they'll remember it. They'll be talking to their mates, you know, while they're uh, doing their carpentry or whatever and saying, remember that stupid old bloke, you know, that young bloke, you know? Young bloke. Yeah, in those me. days. <laughs> Very young, naive person. All right. So... Newbury, where exactly is that? New, new, um, Newstead. Newstead. Oh, it's, it's only it's only a kilometre. I was wanting to move back. It was a joke right. because I was wanting to move back to Melbourne, and they moved me to Newstead. And you could see the secondary school from Yulon Tech. Right. <laughs> That's how far I moved to Melbourne. Right. But it, it made a huge difference because you know I I actually found I could teach. I started to find I could teach when I was there mm. better. You know was 
the, the discipline wasn't such a huge issue. But what was an issue was that in my second year out, because in those days, we coming out of universities in the 60s were qualified with degrees and teacher tra- a year of deped, teacher training, and most of the teachers in schools were not. Mm-hmm. So I found myself... Um, the, the deputy prince headmaster was the head English teacher, but he had something, to, uh, I don't know, he, he got the job, I think, of whatever, second command, and didn't want to head the English department, so he made me the head of the English department, ahead of all these well-experienced, much older teachers who uh-huh. were furious and hated my guts. Uh-huh. But it, it brought out a situation whereby we were sent, they were employing still teachers who did not have any teaching qualifications or university mm. degrees. And we ended up at Newstead. No, not Newstead. What am I talking about? It's not Newstead. That's near here. Yeah. Is it Newbury? Um, was it Newbury? Um, no, not quite. I'll think of it. In the right. <laughs> think of it in the or whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> they, they sent us a, a new English teacher. Therefore, I was responsible for him. Mm. who was Egyptian, right. whose one qualification was a degree in engineering from Cairo University, right. <laughs> whose English was uh, fairly basic, yeah. and he was trying to teach and having terrible trouble, and that was my responsibility. Yeah. So we were the first, I think, the first teachers who, the year before we went out on strike for the first time ever, mm. I think, about having to sign on time books when we arrived and when we left. Right. Then we started the battle for, in for making the, the department enforce its own regulations about qualifications for teachers because they didn't imply, you know, use them. No, you're right. Look, I remember when I was in grade eight, I went to a Salisbury State High School, a public high school in Melbourne. What I mean, I mean a state high school in Melbourne. And my grade eight teacher was employed at the end of World War Two, and his, he had gone to grade 10. Mm. And that was it, because there was such a shortage of uh, teachers at that particular point in time. Yeah. Now, so how long did you last as a teacher? Well, I, well you know, I was, I was indentured for three years. I did four. Mm. I ended up at Mitcham High School, and that was really good. I sort of got into my straps then. It was terrific. It was really a lot of fun by then. Um, and then I went, did what we all did, got on boats and went over to England. Oh, the old you dart. You went by boat. Then. Yes, the old, the, the old dart. Yes. And and it, were you shocked? <laughs> I was, because, uh, because I was brought up in this pseudo-English public school, all with English textbooks. All the, nearly all the books we read were English. Very little Australian import or very little Australian history. And... I thought I was going home <laughs> to some degree. Talk about naive. <laughs> Talk about Sorry naive. about my laughter. And then, you know, we, we straight away, this friend of mine was there and, and, and she was working at, oh, um, Selfridge's, if the women's wear department. She was, hope, she was a teacher and hopeless at that. And she got me, she took me off to a, an agency and, you know, you got paid something like £12 a week, yes. um, which was, you know, $24 literally. And I ended up in 
I ended up in Selfridges counting the money. I was just off Ooh. the day off the boat. <laughs> and and I, didn't know what the, I didn't know what the currency was. These were <laughs> brass thrippences, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I see. And, yeah. and then I worked part-time for the London Electricity Board as a temporary job. Um, and I was put in charge of, of, because I was a bit of a smart bugger, I was put in charge of complaints. <laughs> to, to shut me up. And... and I, I, people who'd, who'd been cut off because they hadn't paid their bills. And you get, I remember some woman saying, I can tell you come from so far away, you don't care about my problems. <laughs> and most likely she was right. <laughs> <laughs> she was spot on. <laughs> but I, must have, I, was, I was famous because that, that summer, having been come from Australia, and we were wearing in Australia um, shorts down to knees, then yes. long white socks with shoes was the summer gear and I took it with me and they had a bit of a heat wave like it got to 20 or 22 or something and I wore my shorts and socks to work and peep and on the way to, to the LEB I was chased and wolf whistled by a gaggle of women traffic wardens to start with and then when I got into the office people kept coming and looking in through the door all day and finally, a manager in our section called me up to his desk and he said, look, I can forgive you the shorts. I can even forgive you the socks, but I cannot forgive you for bringing an umbrella with you <laughs> because it's always rain. So I took an umbrella. So it was a shock to find out that, um, that they were... And I, when I was teaching, it was in pretty rough schools. That yes. was a shocker. And I was in a, a girl's upper and the Gilead girls upper and Gilead girls lower right. and in the lower school a woman said to me a teacher English teacher said to me I could never go to your country you have no culture right. <laughs> <laughs> so being at home wasn't you know I was disillusioned very very quickly I lost all that nonsense. so you came back um, two years later yes yeah. I lived there for two years including yeah. a stint living in Rome for a while this this, this, this would be the are you being served era, wouldn't it? Um, yes. <laughs> oh, no, I think that came later. It came later. Like, it was a bit like that. <laughs> it was, it was, <laughs> You're listening to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. So, so you got back to Australia... And did you go back to teaching or? Yes, I did. I, and I taught in secondary schools for about 20 years. 20 years, right. Yes, and then, and I did too much. And, you know, part of that group who were just falling into a heap, you know, the, the not so good teachers survived, but the really good ones was yeah. giving it too much and I gave it too much. I think there's also that element of being gay because you couldn't be out in right. the 1970s and 80s. Mm. Um, so you had to keep quiet. Uh, and that's a strain. I remember getting involved in the 1980s in a sex education course, which was run by Dallas Sargent at the Melbourne University Biology Department. Whole group, they did doctors first, then they did teachers. We were the first group of teachers. Um, and we then, we then carried that through in the, in the school I was at with um, sex education classes to year seven and eight. Mm. And then we had we had um, a meeting in the school theatre, which held two hundred people with 
year seven parents to explain it. And I was always had to be the you know the one with the mouth had to be the front man right. up <laughs> to tell them all this. Um, and and we had a, we used a textbook. We showed them the book. We went through mm. what we taught them and all mm. of that. You know, just explaining what we do. And then you know there was always the pit. one woman coming and said, "I don't mind what you teach because you're a good teacher, but you're not going to talk about homosexuality, are you?" <laughs> And I had, well, I said to this woman, well, it's not in the course, the book we're doing. I said, but students will ask everything and anything. Mm. So if they, it comes up, if they, you know, then we'll talk about it as a group. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, but it was a strain, I think. I think looking back, it was more of a strain than I realised. Yeah. So when, when were you kind of extricated yourself from that situation? Well, because I had, I had the classic. Um, right. Not break physical breakdown. I, I developed this irritable bowel problem, right. mm. and there were days when I just couldn't go to work. Right. Um, and I thought, oh, and I got. Tra- I've been in one school for about fifteen years, and I got transferred to another one, and I lasted a term. Right. I felt terrible. I had two years off. So were you, were you um, able able to claim workers' compensation or not? Um, there was work care. It was covered work by care, work though, care. Work care in those days. Yeah. yeah. And, and I got counselling, which I thought was totally humiliating, but the woman I saw through the union, it wasn't through the Ministry of Education, it was through mm. the union, mm. um, secondary teachers' union, um, and she was terrific. And the first two hours I spent with her, she said, tell me what you've done for the last five years. So I told her, and she said, they're taking notes, taking notes and shaking head, saying, I don't believe it. <laughs> I don't believe it. She said, didn't you ever say no? And I said, no, because you always, no, Rob, you'll have to take on another load of, of the history coordinator's job because you'll you'll do it properly and otherwise the students will be disadvantaged. You know, all this stuff that they black mm. with it. Well, they do. You exhaust yourself. You, know? you do, you do. You kind of get sacrificed. So after the uh, period where you weren't able to teach, did you move on to something else? Or? Yes, teaching. Again? <laughs> <laughs> what, you, what else do you think? I... Uh, the one uh, thing is the one thing. In maybe the, in maybe the, you could have become a butcher or something, or a metal worker, <laughs> considering your your lawn experiences. Well, I think there's something similar to butchering with <laughs> teaching, really. but uh, it was good for me in a way because I was off for two years, and I no one was apart from the union. No one was really helping you or doing anything, and I decided I had to do something with myself. I went and did some Italian and oh, paletaliano. Yes, and oh, I don't really now, but I did some. And I thought, oh, this is, with adults, is really good. And then I did some pottery, and mm-hmm. that was really therapeutic and good with adults. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, we're working with adults is good. So, um, and I, I joined, I was living in Ferny Creek in the Dandenongs and joined a local writers group, which is where I met Maria Millers. Mm-hmm. And I became, they, the group set up a magazine called Rilla, Rilla, and I was its editor for the first two years because mm-hmm. I had some time initially. Then I got myself a part-time job in an adult learning centre teaching VCE English at the year level, year 11 level. Right. And from that one class, I built up a full-time job oh. of teaching English, um, eventually Australian history, literacy to people learning the language. Um, I taught everything. I taught a vast amount of things. I taught train-the-trainer courses for adults teaching adults. Right. Um, and it was a, a, I did that for 20 years, and it was a joy, absolute yeah, joy. Yeah. Because Super teacher. 
Oh, you were thanked all the time. Yeah. You know, every class someone would thank, thank me you. for it. Right. And yes. I would get all the credit. You know, that some of these women who felt terribly insecure and were at home with kids and mm. they've got no confidence and Rob, your marks are too generous. And I said, well, wait till you get your exam results. <laughs> and, you know, if you look at the bell graph of results in VC in a school, it goes from A plus down to D. Right. And our results went from A plus to B. To B. Mm. Yeah. Now, I'm going to ask you a very personal question. You don't have to answer this. Right. Do you have any of that pottery on display in your home today? I, I do. Exactly. <laughs> in the room I'm at, there's, there's 10 little funny bowls. On top of a bookshop. Is there? Oh, that's lovely. That's lovely. I gave a lot away, um, and I've, I've still kept, yeah, I've kept some of it. It was, it was re- I really enjoyed it. But mm. I think joining the writing group, I got writing many short stories. Mm. And then I started writing poetry, and then I started sending poems off. And then the Maria Millers, who I was talking about, um, was producing a series of Poets of the Dandenongs, and I was number three in that series, and that was my first book. Right. Back in 1996. And Maria is still living in Emerald. And I, my sixth book, as I told you, was published this year. And Maria came to the, the launch of it in, here in Castlemaine. So it was wonderful. She must have been very proud of you. She, she was. In, yes, she was. She would yeah. have seen you as a protege. Well, she's been, the, yeah, she's the one who first published me and encouraged yes. me. Yes. And I remember years ago, she said to me, Rob, your trouble as a writer is, I thought, oh, God, what's coming? You don't know how good you are. Right. And I've never forgotten that. That's been a great help. But I was teaching and writing is, is really hard work. I was probably writing about a dozen poems a year. Right. But back in about 2006, I'd entered a few competitions. And in 2006, I won the John Shaw Nielsen Poetry Prize. Right. which is through the Fellowship of Australian Writers. And that taught me, oh, I've got something, mm. maybe. You know, I, I must be better than I think. Maria's right. Mm. <laughs> so when we then, my partner and I sold up in 2008 and moved to Castlemaine, and I thought, well, I could go on. I wanted to go on teaching. I thought, no, no, 40 years is enough. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I've done my bit, 40 years. So I've, I've turned to writing a lot. So I've had a lot more poems published, and, and now my sixth book. Right. We'll look. We'll look at that in a few minutes. But I, I'm interested. You said you've been in the same relationship for 48 years. That's yes. quite extraordinary. How did you first meet? If you're happy to talk about it, I'm quite happy to talk about anything. Right. All right. How did you first meet? <laughs> um, through a mutual friend in Melbourne, mm. um, and he said to us, he said to me, look. Um, There were very few gay venues back in 1973. There was one in a pub somewhere in central Melbourne upstairs, a bar upstairs, and he was meeting this friend of his who was called Bill. Hmm. And he said, you should meet him. I think you'll like him. He said, he's Dutch. And Bill turned out to be Wilhelmus. He'd anglicised his name. Name, And to his family, is Wim. Hmm. So I, I always called him. Wim, and I introduced him to my family and my friends as Wim, so he's been Wim to everybody ever since. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, is it true what they say about Dutch men, that they're hard-headed and never listen? <laughs> Show. <laughs> I know it's a stereotype. I know it's a stereotype. I, to put it mildly. <laughs> to put it mildly. 
I think it's part of the colonial past, you know. Oh. <laughs> been in Indonesia for, I mean, the only Dutch I've met have been very, the men anyway, the women, it's all right. They've been very hard to get on with because they're always right. I think there, there is, I, well, Wim would say there's a certain type of Dutch man <laughs> that's like that. Yeah, but he's... Um, but he's, he's not quite like that. And was he in the teaching game or...? No, not at all. Right. No, he, he was initially in, in hospital administration. Right, right. Um, but once we were living together, he confessed that he really wanted to get into horticulture. Right. So he went off to Burnley and did a horticultural course and then worked in nurseries until he retired. Right. So how good does your garden look there? Um, the garden in Fernie Creek was fabulous. Now how about here? Come on, come on. It, in Castlemaine, it's hard work because the soil's so terrible. It's a very warm, dry climate. But yeah. It's getting there. It's We've getting there. We've improved a lot. Yeah, well, that's good. And that's wonderful. Gardening is such a joy. Right. Have you got any uh, poems about your garden? No. Ah, oh, well, maybe that's the next book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> You know, incorporating poetry with uh, gardening, that, that's, that's an area you should explore, I reckon. You'd make a packet. Oh. <laughs> well, Sorry. I mean, there, there have been... Well, there's been the occasional poem that touches on gardening. Right. No, it's not something... It's a bit like teaching. I don't write a lot of poems about school experiences either. I can, I can imagine. <laughs> You're listening to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. This program is streaming on 3cr.org. .au, the program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Tell, tell us about your latest book. Uh, well, um, in 2016, I had a major health issue and I'm lucky to be here, mm. which should have been easily fixed, but something went wrong. Not with the operation, that was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was the old irritable bowel. Something went wrong and I was ill for about seven months after it. And I found it really hard just to pot around with the individual poems. I thought, I need, um, I need a project to get me involved. And I came up with the idea of researching the history of gay men in Australia and producing poems about it. And I found, oh, I don't think I'd, that's been done before. And I didn't intend... It's not the full history of Australian men, gay men. But I then found it difficult to find research material because I, I went through the lesbian and gay archives in Melbourne who were very helpful and sent me material. Um, but most of it was, wasn't really good for people, who, someone who wasn't well, because it was fairly depressing. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of it was, the evidence is in newspapers of court cases. Um, and some of it was ludicrous. But I really got into, I mean, the, the horror stories, a lot of it. Some of it was funny. Some of it was interesting. And I just focused on specific periods, dates, and specific people. Going back to 1727, when a Dutch ship, of all things, the Zeewick, was shipwrecked off the coast of Western Australia. And the captain and some of the crew went off to the Tavia right. to get help. Mm. And the, the rest found two teenage boys having sex so they punished them by putting them rowing them off to two separate rocky outcrops and leaving them there mm. i mean it's brutal i don't know it's oh, that was that was the worst european massacre that's happened in australian history that was uh, the four ringleaders were 
hung on the spot when they Batavia when they returned from Batavia. Yeah, there's been a lot written about that period. There's a lot of stuff in the West yeah. Australia Museum, but um, yeah. So, 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 and then I, I went on through right up to the 2016 Victorian State Government apology to gay men, which mm. people we we quickly forget the things that happened recently. But that was the Andrews government, and um, there was this apology for all the things done in the name of the states to go to, to gay men over the years. Because I mean, it was only until um, 1860-something, that the last man was hanged in Tasmania for one act of sexual intercourse mm. with a 14-year-old boy who was released. Mm. And this man was an American sailor, actually, who was so tiny that they had to hang weights around his feet to make sure his neck broke. Mm. That's right. It was the, what was the, what was the, what was the crime of buggery, wasn't it? Oh, buggery. That was the, or sodomy. Sodomy. Sodomy was the big word. Yeah. Sodomy was the big word. Yeah. Now, would you like to tell us, recite a few of your poems for us in the last ten minutes or so? Okay. Well, the the, the book is made up of three sections, mm-hmm. and it's called Down Rainbow Road: New and Selected Poems. The first section is called Inheritance, which is the history of. You know, bits of the history of gay men in Australia. The second section is my own personal journey called Muscular Flirtation, so from my childhood to my adult life. And Gordon Thompson, the publisher um, at Cards of Magellan, um, chose poems from my previous five books for the, the selected part. So I'm going to read a poem uh, from the inheritance section of the history and this is in 1796 and I was sometimes adopted the voice of the person in order to capture the language that they used um, apart from what was going on and this is about Governor Arthur Phillip so it's called the New Zealand Solution 1796 I Governor Arthur Phillip firmly believe that only two offences deserve the death penalty murder and sodomy. When the first case of sodomy came before me, I did not put this belief into practice. Instead, I offered an alternative in the hope that the dread of this would operate much stronger than the fear of death. My solution? To imprison the convicted felon until the opportunity offered to deliver him to the natives of New Zealand and let them eat him. And did he go ahead with it? I never. Look, you laugh, but I never found out what happened right. to that person. I suspect not. Suspect not. <laughs> That's the words of our first governor. You know, yes, wonderful, isn't it? Yes. Well, we're all creatures of our cultural upbringings, aren't we? Mm-hmm. We see the same thing happening around the world today in different parts of the world, as far as yeah. gay men are concerned. Oh, I know. It's, yeah, yeah. Well, it's still, it still goes on. I mean, one of the things I want to do is to make people, not just gay men, but also the whole community, aware of how far we've come. Mm. That we've come from these awful things of, you know, sending them to New Zealand to be eaten or being hanged. Um, it, we have come a long way, but there's you know, an awful lot of things. Do you know, in, I don't know whether you saw... Saturday's Age Good Weekend section. No, it's not mine. There was an article on um, 
the, it, the, what was the murder of gay men in Sydney, right about near Bondi Beach in yes. the 1980s. Yes, it was a sport. The, yeah, the Bondi boys were yeah. attacking them mm. with hammers and mm. whatever and throwing them over the cliffs. Mm. And the police didn't do very much about it. Well, I have a poem about that, but I wasn't going to read it, actually. But do you want me to read another one from that section? Of course. This one's called Peanutting, and I didn't know what peanutting was. I'd never heard that. Um, this goes back to 1957. Peanutting was when you stole into a toilet and a young, cute and cuddly man winked at you, gave you a knowing come-hither look that got you excited. How were you to know he was a vice squad detective who would arrest you, charge you with offensive behaviour? Given who you were, a visiting pianist from Chile, this sensation made the local papers. So when you walked onto the stage of the Sydney Town Hall the next evening, the audience gave you, Claudio Arau, a standing ovation. The judge agreed, fined you five pounds for what he considered a completely trivial case. The infamous were not so lucky. Could you give us a, a, a final poem from your personal section? A final poem, yeah. I've um, only got about three or four minutes. So. Okay, yep, sure. Hmm. Must be a big uh, book. <laughs> How many pages is it? Um, 500? No, 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 no. no, 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 no. About 120. Oh, so, it says, so there's at least 100 poems there. Well, something like ninety, well, yeah, yeah that's a lot of work. I mean, I'll be, I'll, um, be, I'll be lucky to put together one poem in a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is sort of not directly personal, but it is about gay men anyway. And it's called Naked Truth. You know all about difference when very young, which is when they teach you to hate yourself. Words unravel from their tongues. The tips of the fangs poisoned. Define why you are on the outside looking in. Will never belong. Will never be accepted or loved unless you change. Unless you become one of them or remove yourself altogether. Many will conform. Create a carapace that might fool some people. But deep inside stands the blazing glory of who you really are. And this mighty hurricane of truth will sweep all the debris away and leave you standing naked, scarred, imperfect, a column of light, an infinite illumination. Well, that, that, that's a brilliant poem. It is brilliant. Oh, thank you. Um, look, I don't know if I should ask you this question because, you know, you write your poems by hand with a biro, but... Um, mm. Do you have a thing like a website or a YouTube channel or something? <laughs> I'm sorry to ask you this. You know. No, you'd have to apologise. Um, <laughs> I thought it was going to be something really personal about my pops. Um, yes, I do, I do have a website. It's, it's um, robwallacepoetry.com.au. And, and Wallace is W-A-L-L-I-S. So just slowly, slowly. Rob Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, poetry.com.au. How did you snare that? The only Rob Wallace in the world <laughs> with that poetry. 
<laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And um, how do people get hold of the some of your books, especially the latest one? Well, yeah. Well, for Down Rainbow Road, um, all they'd have to do is, is Google Rob Wallace Down Rainbow Road, mm-hmm. and you'll find um, up would come the Clouds of Magellan book site, you know, publication site, um, and one through Amazon. There's quite a lot of local and overseas book sites. Well, the bookshops have got it. So. Bookshops too. Well, that's excellent. Yeah, look, yeah. I'm, uh, I've been very pleased to have this chat with you. And I think, um, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people on Radical Australia, but uh, sometimes you meet people that you kind of think, oh, well, why did I bother? You're not one of them. So you, can, you, can, you, can, you can relax. I'm really, I'm really impressed. And, uh, you know, it's, can I give you a suggestion? Because unsolicited yeah. advice is my specialty. Set up a kiln in the backyard. <laughs> Look, it's pottery. My late wife uh, did pottery, right. and, and we had kilns all over the place. And I can tell you, it's an exciting thing when they come out, as you know. Yes. Uh, look, uh, all the best to you and your partner. And, Thank you. And uh, hopefully you will get to 107, and that's I'm not being cruel, but uh, you sound pretty healthy and pretty good, and you're in a good part of Victoria, and... Uh, you're enjoying your elderly years. So all the very best from us here at 3CR. Well, thank you very much, Sean. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.
Published or not has been on air for over 20 years. And in that time, it's been hosted by Jan Goldsmith. Well, just recently, over the last seven years, I've been joined by David McLean. We'll be talking about text, discussing words and ideas. With local authors, authors from interstate, or sometimes even from other countries. You can stream it live or find it on your favourite podcast app. So join us every Thursday at 11.30 on 3CR. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.